0: can i please have your attention can you
1: dig greetings dear listeners this is jonah goldberg host of the remnant podcast brought to you by the dispatch and dispatch media um thank you for tuning in do all the things with the reviews and the whatchamacallits and the whatevers um that would be great um very excited about today's guest uh it's i believe his second time on the remnant um and you know people say that with the breakdown and polarization of this world that you know people can't reach across the aisle but i am heroically um having someone from brookings my existential (laughs) foe as an aei guy um, on this podcast and and i'm referring to shadi hamid um he's a contributing editor at the atlantic a senior fellow at the brookings institution an assistant pro- research professor of islamic studies at fuller seminary he's written a bunch of books he's also the co-founder and host of the wisdom of crowds which is a excellent podcast newsletter and debate platform shadi thanks so much for coming back hi jonah thanks for having me um you know if 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 the old rules of Sicilian think tank vendetta applied, I would have to kill you. But um, we're (laughs) we're in a more elevated. Well, I'm
0: actually talking from Brookings right now, so I'm literally there in the enemy headquarters.
1: My God, you know, if only G. Gordon Liddy had listened to Nixon and burnt Brookings to the ground, the world would be (laughs) a (laughs) better place. I kid, I kid. Um, So, uh, wanted to have you on um, in part because these are interesting times, and it's like it's okay to talk about foreign policy debates again, um, which it's been a little while. Um, and uh, you have an interesting piece in the, I don't know if it's the, I think it's the latest Atlantic. Um, I see the hard copy so rarely that it's hard to know what, what counts as the latest edition of the Atlantic. But well,
0: it's, it, it's just online, but still, it's, okay. um, it's, it's recent.
1: And uh, it's, there are many things worse than American power. And the subhead is blaming us hegemony for global problems has been easy, but Putin's invasion of Ukraine offers a preview of a much more dangerous world. So there's much I agree with. I have, I have, I have nuanced, uh, disagreements. Uh, but why don't you sort of lay out for listeners, you know, your argument and we'll take it from there.
0: Yeah, sure. So I've been thinking more about American power lately. Um, actually the day that the invasion of ukraine happened i had i was talking to a group of college students and it occurred to me when i was talking to them that they had no memory of nine eleven or they weren't even alive on that day and i mentioned to them that they may be living in a historical moment that will define them just like nine eleven 11 define me and my generation and shaped how we basically pursued our careers and Um, you know, a lot of us moved to the middle East, lived there, studied it and so forth. So this, this could be one of those pivotal moments. Obviously there are limits to the analogy, but I think for those of us who grew up in the shadow of nine 11, we, we under, we understandably saw American power as a problem, that it was excessive, that no one could really challenge us. And we went around, um, squandering our power, entering into these blunders and disasters, particularly in Iraq. So then what was the lesson of that? The lesson was that we had to find ways to constrain American power. Many of us came to believe that Ameri- that we as Americans didn't really have the capacity to use our power for good. And as I say in the piece, this wasn't just a far left perspective. This extended to Barack Obama himself. And many listeners might remember the famous slogan. Can I swear on your podcast, Go Joe? And I it. presume I can, because yeah. <laughs> this is actually how Obama said it. Don't do stupid shit. That right. was his foreign policy vision. If you want to, you know, sum it up in a sentence, and he would often say that. Um, and that was a self-limiting principle. Obama wasn't talking about how we can be better or how we can find ways to use our power more effectively. He was talking about let's limit. Let's just not do stupid things. So I think that this is, that's the era that we're coming out of. And I think what I'm realizing more and more, more and more, and what I think a lot of Americans are realizing is that American power can be good. And a world, w- a world without American power is one where Russia and China dominate. And if those are the available alternatives, I think it becomes a pretty clear question with a pretty clear answer. And I'm someone who will say from the get-go, America has done terrible things abroad. We have a tragic legacy, especially in the region that I focus the most on, the Middle East. We've supported brutal dictators, undermined democracies, the list goes on. But that that doesn't mean that U.S. power can never be used for good. And now is a time when we're seeing that... Um, US power and the power of our Western allies and coordinating that power is absolutely essential at this particular moment in time. So this idea of blaming America first of seeing America as a malevolent force in global politics, I just think all of that is absurd now. And it's hard to take seriously. There is no moral equivalency between the US and Russia.
1: So, um, Lot to chew on there. I mean, as you know, uh, I'm a right-of-center guy, and I got a right-of-center audience, and I can I can hear through all of the weird permutations and folding space of of the space-time continuum, my listeners saying, "Who's we?" When you say, uh, <laughs> you know, we thought that America was a, a negative actor in the world. We, you know, all all of the things that you were assigning, which I, I in the the spirit of of uh, full discourse and disclosure and what I'm perfectly willing to concede that even where I disagree with it, it's a legitimate point of view on a lot of cases. Um certainly I I, you know, I was a supporter of the Iraq war. I now am perfectly willing to say in, you know, in hindsight that it was a mistake. And if we had to do it over, knowing all the facts that we knew at the time, we shouldn't have done it. And um I'm less convinced about Afghanistan, which you sort of list in in your essay. Um uh, I I think more American power earlier in Afghanistan would have been better. And certainly the way we got out of Afghanistan was a disaster, whether you were for never being in there in the first place. Um, That said, you know, um, you know, so like there are someone like me who thinks that actually American power was on net maybe not in the 19th century. I mean, we can have those arguments, you know, like we did some really crappy things in Latin America. Not all of it was crappy, but some of it was crappy. I mean, like I'm not going to defend the stuff we did in Nicaragua. It was pretty awful, you know, and I'm sure we can come up with a bunch of other things. And, but I'm sort of a Gene guy on some of these things. And I, I think the dictatorships and double standards argument was true in the cold war. And, um, if the, and so I, I, well, I agree with your net, with your takeaway that, um, that moral equivalency is a, is, is, is an approach to foreign policy that can rot your brain because, um, there is no moral equivalency between the United States and Russia in this context. And I don't think there was any moral equivalency throughout the cold war. Um, uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm with you on your takeaway, but I think that, that what I find sort of interesting, and you may bristle at this, um, is that, at the moment that the big chunks of the right are moving towards almost it again, it has right-wing flavor to it, but almost the exact same blame America first BS that defined big chunks of the left in say the 1970s, um, people like you are having a and, and I I really don't mean this to hurt your feelings, but sort of a <laughs> neoconservative um renaissance where they're discovering that, oh, America can be a force for good in the world and that the alter you know the alternative. To America, getting out is not a you know a blossoming of freedom and love in the world. It's a vacuum that worse actors will occupy, and I find it um, as sort of enjoyable to watch. So, I mean, how do you, how do you respond to this this base, cruel charge of of running dog neoconservatism?
0: <laughs> well, just to clarify, who I was talking about with the we um, there, I just have in mind um, young people of my generation who lean towards the left or who went through that phase in college where they read people like Noam Chomsky and participated in anti-war protests and teach-ins and die-ins and whatever. Um, I think a lot of us have shifted from that moment, but you know, if you're living in a Northeastern liberal elite city, I think it was pretty common to become quite skeptical about the use of military force really in in most contexts right mm-hmm. as for me i mean i i um have always been a bit hawkish so i mean i supported um direct military action against the assad regime in 2012 and 2013 and i see obama's failure to impose a no, a no fly zone, no drive zone, among other things against Assad in Syria as one of the moral stains on his legacy, and maybe even a strategic stain, as we're starting to realize that Russia interpreted our weakness in Syria in, in a particular way. So I, I was already hawkish. I think my argument is more directed to those who were still on the fence. But even even me myself, and I, I tweeted this the other day, I would have not Bef- before this Russian invasion, I would not have been in support of increasing our defense budget or even really focusing on that as a priority and having that be a debate. Like, why? Why should that be a priority? Now, if anyone wants to come and propose a significant increase in our defense budget, I am all ears. I think a lot of us are going to be all ears.
1: So, I mean, what I... And so I should be clear about what I I, I mean by neoconservatism. Um, I don't just mean the sort of... 1970s early 80s foreign policy neoconservatism which this is a i'm not gonna my listeners know this about me i'm not gonna bore you with it but i i I get very frustrated by the use and abuse of the term neocon to basically mean bagel snarfing warmonger um because first of all neoconservatism as a term first and foremost describes domestic policy former liberals who moved rightward in the wake of the great society and the cultural upheavals of the 1960s, all of the original neocon intellectuals who wrote for the public interest, um, from Nat Glazer and Daniel Bell through Irving crystal and all the rest. Uh, they were, you know, they were domestic policy intellectuals who were responding, you know, who were acting on sort of the, um, the famous line from Irving Kristol, which was a neoconservative is a liberal who's been mugged by reality. Yep. And, uh, the later, the second wave were the sort of Gene Kirkpatrick commentary magazine crowd, um, who were foreign policy types. And that was a, a younger, different wave of neocons. And so I, when I, and so I, I think that part of what we're seeing right now with a bunch of call them liberals. You can use your own labels for you and your friends. What I think is very interesting is that both on the domestic and the foreign policy side, there are these analogous movements where a bunch of fairly level-headed people said, you know, I get where the defund the police people are coming from, but as a matter of politics and policy, actually abolishing the police is kind of dumb. And there's been a backlash against that, right? And so all of a sudden, a lot of liberals are rediscovering that there is an argument for law enforcement. Similarly, in the wake of Ukraine, there are a bunch of liberals who sort of went with the momentum of the rhetoric of sort of blame America first kind of stuff, who are realizing, realizing you know, wait a second, that stuff is, is not suited to the moment that we're in. And as you say, are now in, you know, much more open to things like increased defense spending, um, which is sort of analogous to increased police disp- spending with all sorts of obvious, you know, problems with the metaphor. but. Um, do you see that? You know, I mean, do, do you have, do you have any sort of first order of objections to that observation? Am I am I just missing something, um, um, or do you think that's there's something to that? There's definitely something to it. I think
0: last time I was on, we talked more about the woke type. Um, some of the woke type stuff came up certainly, and it's also weird now that a lot of these woke debates seem particularly small and it's even hard for me to get engaged in those debates because there is a war that presents an existential threat to a lot of the things that we hold dear as Americans there is a lot at stake and it's just a reminder that as important as our woke debates are for domestic politics this sometimes things like this put things into perspective you know critical race theories like or whatever you want to call it, it's pretty bad but it's not literally the end of the world let's say you know um, but, on you know, on your broader point, um, so there's two ways of looking at it. One is to say that someone like me who's become quite critical of the woke turn in the Democratic Party, that I've shifted to the right. I personally don't see it that way. I just think I'm a normal person. I think a lot of the woke people have shifted to the left. It's not really even on our recognizable political spectrum. It's just mm-hmm. really odd, weird, and sometimes ridiculous ideas that have never been part of the democratic party's worldview. So in that sense, I don't see myself, I guess a lot of people perceive me as, Oh, you have weird ideas. Are you really <laughs> a Democrat? Um, how can you say this? Why aren't you representing your brownness as a person of color? You must be conservative. So I don't want to buy into that because that seeds the ground to people who I think are, um, are not the right people for the Democratic Party and God willing will not be the future of the Democratic Party if any of us have say, have something to say about it. But I do take your point that, you know, when you are confronted by reality, that tends to chasten you a little bit. So I didn't have strong views on police versus defund the police before. It wasn't something I paid a lot of attention to. Now I am someone who supports maintaining existing funding for police and perhaps in some circumstances, increasing funding in certain areas. It's because of a debate that we've been having and because of what we've seen in recent years that's pushed me to even adopt that position in the first place, because before it was like, that's not something I'm particularly focused on. But now we have to be focused on it because it is a major point of public debate, so in that sense, maybe we are seeing some realignments. I don't think it means that, you know, people are going to shift partisan labels. I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe if there was a better version of the Republican Party, that some people would be willing to make that jump. I don't know. My guess is that there aren't many people like that now, and there probably shouldn't be for the time being. Yeah, I like
1: I'm perfectly happy to stipulate the Republican party's a hot mess, you know, and, and <laughs> happy to talk about that all, all you like. Um, um but you know, so on this point about, you know, the, the the changing nature of of I can't say it's the changing nature of the Democratic Party per se. I mean, at the level of national rhetoric, it's still a mixed bag, I would argue, and I think the Democratic Party has many of the same problems that the Republican Party does, which is that many of the worst voices have the loudest megaphones and influence the messaging of what the party actually stands for, um, to the detriment of the parties. Right. I mean, like my, it's a, it's a bingo card thing on this podcast, but my main heuristic for understanding contemporary politics is that both parties behave in ways that can only be explained by wanting to be minority parties. Um, and, um, I think that, but it's, so it's, interesting to me to see how a group of intellectuals, and I'm throwing you in that bunch, um, are sort of focusing on the reality at hand rather than the wishes and hopes of the world as it could be. It's sort of, this is the world that we have. And I agree with you entirely. The, the, you know, the, a lot of the woke debate stuff, or, you know, the, the freedom convoy stuff that occupied the right, you know, for so much, it kind of reminds, I think it's Eugene McCarthy. I can't remember who first said this, but there's this great line about America that it can, um, it can choke on a gnat, but it can swallow tigers whole. Um, hmm. this idea that it gets during times of fairly, very, pretty much pre- pre- peace and prosperity or just normal politics it gets caught up in really dumb, dumb things. And then once you can get its attention to like something that really matters, it actually moves pretty quickly. Um, so just, just a level set since I, I'm, I'm monologuing here too much. Um, and your ideal, what, what should America be doing vis-a-vis Russia and Ukraine right now? Um, and, um, and how do you think we've handled it so far?
0: Yeah. You know, Biden obviously didn't have good marks in a number of things before this, including the Afghanistan withdrawal, which, you know, I was sympathetic to the general idea of wanting to withdraw at some point, but the way that it was done and all of that, um, you know, I don't have huge objections to Biden's approach thus far. I am starting to get worried, however, because I think we have reached the limit of the existing policy direction. You know, we've, had pretty far reaching, crippling sanctions, some of the toughest in history against uh, a major power, great coordination with NATO partners, EU, so on and so forth. But on the battlefield, that's where I'm worried that we're not, we're going to lose the initiative by being too cautious and careful. So there are things that even short of a no-fly zone, which we can get to later if you want, I mean, that that is obviously potentially dangerous and risky. And I'm not at the point where I'm willing to um, suggest or propose something like that. Although I think it should at least be debated. I don't think any military option should be preemptively taken off the table. And I mm-hmm. don't like it that Biden telegraphs what he will or won't do to Putin ahead of time. So when he says, oh, we'll never consider a direct confrontation with Russia in Ukraine or, or we'll, oh, no fly zone is out of the question." Even if that's what you really think, it's maybe not the best idea to say that because you do want to have some strategic ambiguity. But short of a no-fly zone, there's a number of things that we can do in terms of sending advanced weapons systems, advanced mobile anti-aircraft kits, Patriot surface-to-air missile system, you know, things like that that are a little bit more technical, um, And we would require military expertise to figure out, you know, how would that would actually be done in an appropriate way. But there still are these steps that we haven't taken in terms of getting, getting weapons to the Ukrainians that they need to actually fight and then maybe even potentially win. I don't want to see a situation where, you know, we let this, we're okay with bleeding the Russians dry and letting this go on indefinitely. And then we have a Syria type situation where no one really wins, but in the end, the Russians still come out, um, in a strong position. Yeah. If we're going to be supporting the Ukrainians, the goal should be to defeat Russia or to at least, I, and by that, I don't mean defeat in some total sense. I mean, kick to them out. get them to make comp, kick them out and, or to make compromises and concessions and any resulting negotiations.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, So, uh, so uh, just so you know where I'm coming from, uh, I have the, I've, I've deep and profound problems with some of the voices on the right that are Putin apologists or Russia apologists and all these kinds of things. And I don't think it's, you know, it's another example of the loudness misleads us to think that it's a much more widespread position. But if you look at where average Republican senators and congressmen come down, most of them are pretty much in the right place on all this stuff partisan talking points notwithstanding but you know people like tucker and some of these people they get more attention than i think they deserve and their positions are kind of grotesque but um it's interesting to me the one of the one of my great peeves about a certain part of the wilsonian foreign policy mindset is the anthropomorphization of nation states so that we sort of project upon them personal emotions and reactions as like who are we to judge that country as if like that is the begin- that's the end of a discussion kind of thing and it, what's interesting to me is that aspects of the left used to be very inclined to do that kind of thing about countries like iran like who are we to judge their system that kind of thing and what's interesting to me is like that's kind of switched places this time around where it's the voices on the right who are saying who are we to judge russia to this great civilization and they do things their way as if like somehow there is Con- the consent of the people and how Putin governs, you know, which is like, the for me, the sin non of the, uh, if you want to talk about nation states having a personality, first tell me about how the people actually have a say in what the nation state is doing, right? And you have on the left a much more correct position about how this isn't the Russian people. This is a cr- gangster regime doing all of this kind of thing. Do you have a theory about why is that the case? Is this just one of these sort of partisan things that flips is it because russia and i i, I want to be delicate about this but i think the fact that russia is a white european country kind of scrambles some of the previous scripts that we've seen in the past um and i can explain that more but i just I, I, like do you have a theory about why the script is flipped on this in the ways that it it hasn't vis-a-vis like america and china or never mind various countries in the middle east
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I think that obviously there's some psychologizing that we can do when it comes to certain folks on the right. I think part of it is that there's a kind of admiration for Putin. He's tough. He's manly. He gets shit done, all that sort of thing that. So it's a kind of um, an instinctive visceral association with someone like Putin. He also presumably reminds them of Donald Trump. Mm. And and it's worth noting that this doesn't just apply to, um, right-wing, um, people in the U S uh, many, many of the Egyptians I know, um, who are, let's say part of the kind of th- the secular elite that supports, um, CC the dictator there. They're also quite sympathetic from conversations I've had and, um, and, uh, pe- folks who just came back from there that, They see Putin as a tough guy and they don't like the U.S. So Putin is a kind of useful vessel to express the fact that they don't like America. And perhaps it's perhaps we can say that a growing number of people on the right here in America don't maybe don't don't love America or see America as becoming a bad, corrupted country, especially when it comes to cultural and civilizational values so they look at russia as a contrast that russia has russia has this kind of tough um whitish civilizational orientation and they fight wokeness i don't know if putin actually does but i sometimes hear claims that putin is like some anti-woke warrior right so i think that it ends up everything comes to be seen as part of a domestic culture war and i think there are there are people who don't they don't really know much about foreign policy. They do know a lot about the culture war happening here in, our, here in America. And everything they talk about and look at is seen through that prism. And that's why I think we all have to kind of steel ourselves against that temptation because there's always a way to make something into a partisan or ideological divide and score points against your enemy. Um, the other, other thing that I would say is that in, in some sense, we're all cultural relativists, some of the time, whether we're on the left or the right, no one is particularly consistent. We're always shifting our positions in ways that aren't always coherent. I think, unfortunately, many in the Republican Party are not what I would call small D Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't necessarily believe that democracy is the best system of government. They might disagree with that characterization, but you know if you support, if you support Trump's efforts to overturn an electoral outcome, I can understand maybe some of the thought that goes uh, that goes behind that, but ultimately it means that your commitment to democracy is not sacrosanct. So therefore, the fact that Putin is a strong man who doesn't have real elections perhaps doesn't bother them as much.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, and I, just so you know, I, I think Trump sh- should have been impeached within 48 hours of January 6th. And I think what he did was terrible and all that. I will say that There are lots of Republicans who, I mean, I think there's a projection problem among a lot of liberals about just simply describing what the actual, like, they fail a lot of Turing tests. And if you talk to a lot of Republicans, they don't, who are pro-Trump and pro-January 6 and all that kind of nonsense, uh they don't think they're anti-democracy, right? Because the premise of their position is, is that it was Biden who, stole, who ruined democracy and they're trying to defend democracy. I think they are wrong. I think they're deluded <laughs> on all of that. But um, when I hear, say, Nicole Wallace on MSNBC every night talk about how Republicans are, Trump supporters are all anti-democracy, I think that's true of the clique around Trump that tried to steal an election because you can't be exonerated from that charge when you know the facts and you still try to steal an election. But for the average rank and file sort of uh, re- pro-Trump Republican type, they don't see themselves as anti-democracy. Um, and I understand why that can be misleading because, or you, won't, it, one can sort of, that can get lost because there's also all of this just sand-poundingly stupid pro-Putin, pro-strongman stuff that gets thrown in the mix and it's easy to sort of connect those dots. Um, and you're, you're free to push back on any of that, but, um, I did want to just on the, on the race thing, just for a second, you hear a lot of people on the left talk about how Western Europe is much more accommodate, or I should say Eastern Europe or Europe is much more accommodating of Ukrainian refugees than it was of say Syrian refugees or, or other refugees from the middle East. I am Sympathetic to a soft version of that argument, but not the hard version of that argument. I'm just I'm sort of wondering where how do you think people should think about that complaint?
0: What what are the soft and the hard versions of that?
1: Well, so the soft version is by implication we should you know Europe should have been better towards the Middle Eastern refugees, which I'm I think that is a perfectly you know reasonable thing uh, to to argue for. Um, although I think Germany did a lot. Um, what I don't think is like letting in all the white European refugees is something that should be condemned. And there is something about human beings, um, that the closer you are culturally to people, the more sympathetic, the more you think they're like you, um, you know, African-Americans, I have family in the Haitian community and when bad things happen to Haiti, they care about it more than, um, when bad things happen to Nicaraguans or Estonians. And, um, I think the same thing with you know American you know middle Easterners are of, of Middle Eastern descent, their concerns about what's happening to people from their you know historic homelands is is stronger than it might be for you know people from someplace else. That is a very human thing, and when you add in also just the the raw public policy considerations of. These refugees are coming in now, and if you don't let them in, they're going to get bombed on your border. Um, it seems to me that, like, trying to turn it into a woke seminar about the evils of white racism, sort of a Hannah Nicole Jones thing about whiteness, is a mistake and is not based on reality. But anyway, that's sort of my
0: point Yeah, on it. so I'm not sympathetic to the woke argument about refugees. I mean, for a number of reasons— First of all, I guess I'm just getting more and more tired of whataboutism from either side of the spectrum. Yeah, look, we do bet like America America does bad things. The West has done bad things. It's it's just it's a little bit unclear what the political implications of that observation are. So yes, we could have been better with the refugees um in Syria in 2015-2016. How does that how right. does that make us shift our policy? Are, are people really suggesting that it's bad that European countries are accepting right. millions of Ukrainians? So it's, it's unclear what the goal of that kind of argumentation is. But I would go one step further along on the lines of what you just said, Jonah, which is I'm also someone who believes in human nature. So I'm thinking to myself, of course, European countries are more accepting of white Ukrainian refugees. Also, Ukrainians are European It's natural that Europeans would be more willing to accept other Europeans into their countries. I mean, thats it seems almost too obvious. I mean, we might wish it was otherwise, but these are things that we know about human beings. There's also, I think, a practical argument. And, um, you know, I'm Muslim myself from the Middle East. I think that it, I would say that it's sometimes harder to integrate Muslim refugees in predominantly secular European countries, not because of anything inherent to Muslims or Arabs, but because there is a cultural gap. Mm -hmm. Europe is the most thoroughly Western Europe is the most thoroughly secularized place on the planet. Barely anyone is practicing or openly religious. So there can be difficulty in integration when you have Um, a significant number of refugees who are outward about their Muslim expressions of religiosity. Those are just practical things that you have to take into account when you're talking about how to bring a new group of people into a particular country. And also, I think there's just, just a kind of sovereignty argument that executive authorities in any country have the right to decide who to prioritize in coming to their countries or or not. And this idea that everyone should have an equal chance to immigrate to America or to any Western country is, first of all, unrealistic, but also, I think, deprives the state of its jurisdiction over an area that's traditionally been under its domain.
1: Yeah. The the whataboutism point drives me crazy. I agree with you entirely. You know, sometimes it, Sounds like these people are arguing that we should be consistently wrong rather than inconsistently (laughs) right. Right. And it is, it it drives me, you know, like, like I'm perfectly willing to concede we've done terrible things in the past, you know, domestically, internationally, whatever. You know, uh, big powerful nations move like Godzilla and they step on stuff sometimes. And that's bad. But the idea that, like, somehow that should be binding in some sort of non-literary way on trying not to do good is just a weird argument and you find it all over the place. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's like if Donald Trump, you know, saying about Putin, well, we kill people too. As if like, what is that? <laughs> what, what am I supposed to take away from that? You know, as a, as a, as a, as marching orders for how to do the right thing. And, um, and I just, I find it amazing how, culturally and politically, so many of these arguments that drove me crazy about some people on the left are now driving me crazy about some people on the right. And I don't feel like I really moved anywhere.
0: Oh, but Jonah, just a question that I would have uh. for you. I mean, it seems to me that a lot of those voices, there are still obviously those loud voices on the right who are saying pro Putin things. And you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but it does seem that there has been a convergence and some degree of bipartisan unity which i think is quite encouraging and mm-hmm. if we keep on moving in that direction that's promising which gets i think to perhaps a bigger long-term implication of all of this which is we've been so divided internally in the absence of an external enemy and you know we've searched for enemies in the past you know muslims islamism 911 uh, terrorism after 911 We tried China for a little bit, but that didn't really gain too much traction. But now I think there's a legitimate case to be made that we should be able to unite around this particular issue. And it seems so far that whatever it is, like 80% plus of Americans generally have a staunch pro-Ukraine, anti-Putin perspective on this, that to me could have major domestic implications in terms of diminishing some of the intensity of the culture war. But that just could be me. That might just be me being a little bit overly naive and optimistic. I'm sure being Americans will find a way to revive the culture war as soon as we can. But, you know,
1: who knows? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm of two minds about this. I am a, uh, a fairly passionate critic of the cult of unity. I think that the the cult of unity gets us into a very bad place as a country. Um, democracy is about disagreement, not about agreement. And um, when, whether it's from the left or the right, when you talk about how the people need to be united, um, we don't have a system or a culture set up for everyone to be united. And, and there's nothing inherently moral or wonderful about unity. Uh, you know, uh, rape gangs are unified. The mob is unified. Lots of bad things can be unified. Fascism, basically the original thing that uh, inspiration for the term comes from the fascies a bundle of sticks around an ax. And the, the message of it is, or the symbolism of it is strength in numbers. Um, the hero in the American political tradition is the guy who stands up against the unified mob, not the mob. And so I am it, the... Uh, That said, I agree with you entirely as your prescription about, it's very good about America that 80% of Americans agree, uh, that Ukraine is the victim here and that we should be doing something about it. I just don't know that that's going to be transferable. I think the real benefits, you know, politically about that is that it exposes certain people who are just simply addicted to BS narratives. And watching them watch their audiences go a different way is very revealing and very helpful. And so, you know, when Lauren Bobbert, in the early days of the invasion, whenever all the sanctions were going up and she starts tweeting this nonsense about how we have to um, sanction all of the leaders of Canada um and call basically call for regime change in canada <laughs> f- uh, because of their tr- the truckers right she so wanted to hold on to the the trucker protests as the thing everyone is talking about right and or, or when tucker says vladimir putin never called me a racist right i mean the fact that these guys you can see how these guys are addicted to their portfolios and when when all of a sudden the market goes someplace else, they're like freaking out. I think that is useful to see who's a responsible moral voice and who's not. But I am, I'm skeptical that unless we get actually into shooting, which has obviously all the sorts of downsides um, that we're going to, that this is going to be that transformative in the long run um, in, at least in positive ways. And I agree with you. Like it's, I agree with you entirely that it bothers me how Biden always starts with what he's not going to do, and he takes all the strategic ambiguity out of it. But it also really bothers me the way he says things, as if these are bold, courageous stances. Where he says uh, he did in the State of the Union, he does it all the time. Where he says, you know, we will defend every inch of NATO, you know, and but as if I understand why you need to say it, but he makes it sound like this is like. He's a wartime president.
0: It's a bare minimum.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a threshold thing. It's, you know, And like there are all these people who are talking about Biden's war powers, but we're not at war. And, um, and I, 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 there's, a, there's something here about trying to seem like he's a wartime president while actually being a very cautious non-wartime president, um, which has defensible arguments for it. I mean, I don't want to get into shooting war with Russia if we don't have to, but. Um, and so I I find the sort of the politics of this remarkably kind of unstable long term and remarkably stable short term.
0: Hmm. Hmm. That makes sense. Yeah.
1: It, let's let's get back to your sort of pie-eyed optimist. Um, this is all going to lead to a great transformation kind of moment. In your heart of hearts, <laughs> if 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 and, and again, I think you'll be perfectly happy to concede if there's something icky about talking about what this will do for domestic politics while, while maternity hospitals are being bombed and stuff, but that's the that's the life we've chosen to have these kinds of podcasts where we talk about these things. Um, what is the best-case scenario that you could see, best-case scenario within the realm of the possible and plausible that you could see going forward in the next six months or a year?
0: As it relates to this war in particular? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean... I don't have any illusions that it will end quickly. I mean, you know, you hope that some of these negotiations that are going on will bear fruit, but they very well may not. We know the kind of person Putin is, so I think we have to steel ourselves for a a longer engagement, and that's precisely why I brought up some of the more advanced measures Mm -hmm. of how we can militarily support the Ukrainians as long as they're willing to fight then we should be helping them do whatever they can to fight more effectively and to you know punish the invading russian forces um we're gonna have to keep on keep on intensifying sanctions there's obviously a limit to how far we can go because we've already gone quite far um but um you know we could be in one of these unusual situations where we have a major war that lasts for a significant period of time and I think as Americans, we're not very used to that. I suppose you could say the Iraq war, well, the, the first stage of the Iraq war was fairly quick. So even even if you take that example, we don't, there isn't, there isn't really much precedent in terms of Americans focusing on something for a long time. So one thing I do worry about is, do you start to see um, a kind of decrease in attention Mm -hmm. that we reach a limit of our attention spans. There's Ukraine fatigue. And then Biden starts focusing more on certain domestic initiatives. And then we kind of lose the initiative. I have been, though, I think pretty, you know, pretty impressed so far, just at the level of coverage, the attention. And it is really great to see that we can sustain that for, what, three weeks. But if this goes on three months, four months, we'll have to wait and see. But um, I think that's that's the most likely scenario because we're dealing with someone who um, who has a tough time standing down and he's stubborn. That said, I think we have to have a big stick, but also have the potential for off ramps. And I know there's you know, there's been some debate about this, whether whether we should reward Putin for just doing what he should have done initially, but for sanctions to be effective. You have to be very aggressive with them, but also leave open the possibility that you'll remove some of them if Putin does things we want him to do. Right? Because otherwise, then we're creating a difficult incentive structure for him, and he's already an incredibly stubborn, brutal, reckless person.
1: I think we, I assume we can agree that Lindsey Graham shouldn't have talked about killing Putin, right? Um, but where do you come down on that question? It always seemed to me like, As a purely objective, all of the, all of the arguments against assassinating or encouraging the assassination of terrible dictators, um, are sort of procedural, right? There's a moral hazard problem when we start getting into that game, but on a sort of raw Benthamite utilitarian calculus, it's very hard for me to see why it's like, you know, I get why you shouldn't say the quiet part out loud. But just as a, as a matter of moral logic, if if it is true that Putin is disconnected from the wants and desires of his own people, and he's doing this for his own and his little coterie's, you know, it, delusions of grandeur and whatnot, you know, wouldn't it be better if someone took him out? Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, look, I think
0: that if. If the Russian people took it upon themselves to move in that direction, or people around Putin decided that it was time—maybe not—I mean, there's other things besides killing. I mean, you could arrest him, presumably, or put him in a box, or, or in a clo- you know, whatever it might be that yeah. like, takes. Send
1: him to the Hague, whatever.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, just take him, take him out of, take him out of a situation where he can make, where he can run this war and not listen to anyone. So if if there is an internal movement where parts of the Russian regime turn against Putin, I think we would all welcome that. So it doesn't have to be a question of you're right that when we talk about assassination, I, I, I don't recall exactly the legality and the procedural aspects of it. I mean, as you suggested, it's generally frowned upon. But also, I don't know if I don't know if that's a capability that the U.S.
1: Yeah, no, I'm not talking about America. I mean, even Lindsey Graham wasn't saying that we should assassinate him. He was like, isn't there a more effective Colonel Staffenberg? You know, where is? Oh, yeah. You that's know, that reasonable. Kind of stuff, you know? Yeah.
0: I mean, having someone else in charge of Russia than Vladimir Putin, I think, is every th- is something all of us or like 90 percent of us would would welcome. and And that's why I think putting pressure on Russian oligarchs. The, the sanctions are supposed to have this effect of creating dissent among the very people that Putin depends on. But on the broader moral question, I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's one that we could apply to any dictator. I mean, it's, isn't there the, the whole like Hitler's baby, th- right? If Hitler was a baby kind of philosophical exercise, you know, if something had happened to Saddam 60 years ago when he was relatively young, that would have been a better outcome for world history, so on and so forth. Some people are better off not having existed, and I think that's that shouldn't be too controversial. I think, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, I'm I'm against the Department of you know, sort of the foreign policy equivalent of the Department of Pre Crime of you know like Department of Pre Dictator. Like, like <laughs> we certainly shouldn't have killed Putin, in, say 1997, right? Because we didn't know. But, um, but I just you know if, if, if you, if you take sort of basic Islamic Jewish Christian notions of morality, the idea that Putin's life is more valuable than the tens of thousands of lives that he's cost, it's just, it's kind of a, again, it's one of these, it's a dumb dorm room conversation because I understand why, but like the, I've just never understood the moral outrage at the thought of it. Um, I understand the, the sort of eye rolling exhaustion with taking it seriously, because as a matter of public policy, you can't get into that business without wreaking havoc around the world. Um, but, uh, that's a procedural issue. That's what I sort of meant by it. I, 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 um, so again, as someone who was on the other side of like the foreign policy stuff throughout the early two thousands and the war and terror and all that, you know, back in the day, I'd never really completely understood why so many on the left hated the mainstream media so much. Cause you know, I grew up, that's our job on the right. And, um, <laughs> and I remember every now and then there were things that were like, well, that's kind of gross. I remember a head of, I think it was NBC news talking about how they're going to be able to cover the 2003 Iraq war like a it was like a video game with this you are there thing I was like yeah dude calm down like that's not how you're supposed to talk about this and um but I have a it's weird I have this new appreciation for that sort of left critique of sort of corporate media in all of this when it comes to the no fly zone stuff where you have one one interviewer after another take the day's headlines and say now are you in favor of no fly zone Right, it is the, the sort of this internal logic that eventually you're going to change your answer, like Joe Manchin on the filibuster or something, and and you never have people say, "Are you in favor of American pilots?" You know, are you in favor of boots in the air, as it were, right, shooting directly shooting at um, uh, Russian troops? And it's a great example of what Orwell talked about in Politics in English Language about how sometimes b- bad use of language and euphemism can corrupt thought and drive us in places that if we just stopped and used different words, we would understand the perils. And I'm not saying that there's no good argument for a no-fly zone. I'm just saying that the way it's asked about and talked about really sort of is, involves an enormous amount of question begging about what we're actually you know, supposed to be considering.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, people need to be clear about what they mean by a no-fly zone. It, it would, It has quite significant implications. For example, we'd have to take out Russian air defenses. It would require, you know, it would require shooting, you know, targeting Russian military assets directly, so on and so forth. So, um, I agree. I think we should talk about a no-fly zone, but it shouldn't be the kind of soundbite thing where are you for or against without all the qualifiers and caveats? Um, not that this will really, I think, reassure anyone who's skeptical, but, you know, those who do favor a no-fly zone, have qualified it and and it's it's certainly more limited. They're talking about specific areas of Ukraine and focusing on humanitarian corridors. So so I mean those details are worth uh you know on un- unpacking. You know, when it comes to the left, the point you made about the left and the mainstream media, it's it's a little bit blurry now, but after 9-11, it was a very closed media discourse. Mm-hmm. And I think one great thing about America today is that as as you said, that there isn't this artificial unity that you can have a very wide array of voices, including you know not always in the mainstream media, but if you look at mainstream adjacent publications um you can actually hear a lot of different perspectives and you have the freedom to search those out that you know nine eleven post nine eleven there was a lot of rallying around the flag, which i I understand vis-a-vis Afghanistan, but when it came to the fact that the, you know, the majority of media and political elite supported the Iraq war and that if you didn't support the Iraq war, your very kind of patriotism could be questioned. I'm happy that we've, we've moved away from that and we should remind ourselves of the kind of climate that we had back then. Um, and for me, those were my, my formative years. So my, my freshman year of undergrad um, started two weeks before 9-11 happened. So, you know, when I talk about how central 9-11 was to me, it, it really did shape shape me in this really profound way. Um, so if we compare the U.S. today to back then, I think there are things that we can be proud of. America isn't like this disaster, and it was like, it, then it was like semi, semi-utopian or a lot better in the 2000s.
1: Um it's i i'm a little older than you um i got you started college 2 weeks before 911 i got married 2 weeks before 911 <laughs> and uh um and it was weird getting back from a honeymoon and like everything at home had changed i mean it was just it was a very very different world and um but i am you know the last time democrats or liberals were sort of out in front on arguing for the use of force with the possible exception of that brief window where Obama endorsed the regime change stuff with Gaddafi in Libya, right? And then all yep. of a sudden there were these great videos, you know, based on like the iPhone thing saying, I don't care where all of a sudden Obama's arguments mirrored a lot of Iraq war arguments, but this time because liberals in charge, it was okay. But the last time there was really a more forceful confidence was in the 90s during the the, Balk- the the Balkan Civil War, the Yugoslav, whatever we're supposed to call that now. Um, and you had people like Madeleine Albright chastising Colin Powell saying, what's the point of having this big, beautiful army if we can't use it? Um, and that kind of thing. And um, I don't think we're quite there yet, but it does seem like there are... Like I feel like a bunch of uh, that we you can kind of see like, oh, we get to use this thing, the military, and since our motives are good, it's gonna be interesting kind of thing. I, I think it's early yet. You're not hearing people say, you know, except for the no-fly zone stuff, get into war. But like, um, do you have any concerns that given how much liberals have invested in multilateralism and diplomacy as an end rather than a means, um, that they're going to be comfortable in this new role of sort of being okay with the force of use of American power? I mean, it's been a while since leading Democrats could talk that language.
0: Look, many probably won't be comfortable. And I think that even if they want to be more comfortable, part of them is going to keep them from going the distance on some of these issues. And Maybe that's good. You need to have different voices in the Democratic Party, some that Council a more cautious approach if it comes to expanding our defense budget and thinking about how we use military force um, more often or more aggressively in certain situations. I, I do think that there are there seem to be some people on the left who think that the U.S. military should never be used for combat, mm-hmm. and I think that at some level you have to acknowledge that. There will be situations where american soldiers may need to be put in harm's way this idea that you can that we can live in the world as it currently is and not have any risk of military confrontation i think that's what we've been disabused of i mean for a long time we thought that there wouldn't be great power great power conflict um this particular so i mean the military was orienting itself in the 2000s to track down you know, ragtag extremists in in Iraq or Afghanistan, that was a very different way of looking at military capabilities than what does a conventional confrontation look like with a semi-major power, Russia. So I think that the illusion of a world that is always progressing and that we're always going towards peace and that other actors are well potentially well-intentioned or rational and we can reason with them you might recall, Obama always used to do this. Whenever a world leader would do something that Obama didn't like, he would kind of go into analyst-in-chief mode. Mm But, you know, the Russians are intervening in Syria now. You know what? This is going to be bad for them. This is going to be a quagmire. And you know what? If they want to do it, they can, but they're going to realize that it's not in their interests. But he's, he's taking what is a distinctly American perspective on the world And applying it to a Russian autocrat. Right. Or when it comes, you know, so, and even when he would talk about um, Israeli leaders, like they don't understand what's good for them because they don't support the nuclear deal. I mean, I was sympathetic to Obama's criticism on that, but he doesn't understand how Israeli leaders think think about risk and benefit and conflict and so forth. So we have to realize that our vision for, a a, a, prog- a a more progressive, peaceful world is one we're going to have to maybe not do away with entirely, but we're going to have to bracket that. And we're going to have to understand that there are, I mean, I don't want to sound bushy and in, in this regard, mm-hmm. but there are bad guys and sometimes they have to be fought. I mean, th- I just don't know how you get around that. China, China has to be confronted. God willing, there won't be in our lifetimes a shooting war, but, is it a priority that we have to push China back and we should see it as a potentially existential threat? Yes. And I think anyone who pretends otherwise is in this dream world.
1: Um, I, just so you know, like if you ever talked to Eric Cantor or any of those guys from the Republican leadership back in the day, the what you describe about Obama's approach to foreign leaders was exactly their biggest complaint about how he... Uh, worked with Republicans, which was like <laughs> he would explain to them that they don't understand their political interests as well as he does. Um, which, you know, even if it were true, and I don't think it was, that's just an infuriating way to talk to somebody. It's like <laughs> your feelings are misleading you. I understand what's best for you and you should listen to me. It's just, and it's one of the things that, that poisoned a lot of things with him. Um,
0: but liberals uh, love doing that. That's the thing. I mean, there's one way to define like the liberal... Approach to dialogue. It's to say, we know what's better for you, and let's explain to you why you should change your opinion and be more like us.
1: Yeah, see, I agree that there's that's one of the things that drives a lot of people on my side of the aisle crazy about liberals. But the added problem is that if you, and they've done these tests, they've done these experiments about what they call sort of ideological Turing tests conservatives are much better at guessing what the liberal position would be on something than liberals are about guessing what the conservative position would be on something. Liberals consistently assume that conservatives are going to say, Oh, cause a race this or whatever that or capital or greed that whatever. And, and part of it has to do with the fact that conservatives for to a large part, maybe not in some rural parts of the country, but you know, in the worlds that you and I inhabit, you know, we're classic minority cultures where we know our, what, we, uh, what we think, but we also know what, um, what the majority culture thinks because in urban, highly educated areas, we're mostly surrounded by liberals and the culture is liberal. So we're imbibing liberal culture in ways that you know, liberals aren't imbibing anything cons- can go a long time without imbibing anything conservative. So the really annoying part about that, let me explain to you why my position is in your interest stuff, is they don't even understand what the conservative interests are <laughs> uh, um you know it'd be one thing you know, sometimes you could be right with that argument like i'm definitely right about that argument with my daughter all the time but i also understand you know what her actual interests are and that kind of paternalism i think gets liberals into a into a huge huge problem um so uh, just i know I've, I've kept you a while just you know one of my lasting critiques of the multilateralism, internationalism of sort of the liberal, democr- the liberal foreign policy elite has been sort of, can be summarized as, is it's better to be wrong in a big group than to be right alone. Like, unless you mm-hmm. have a bunch of allies, you know, who are with you, uh, then unilateralism is like a grand sin or something. And what, you know, what if Germany, didn't turn on a dime about Ukraine. What if NATO wasn't all with us on this stuff? Do you think that sort of the Biden administration or the Democratic Party or liberals writ large would still be able to sustain this line about supporting Ukraine?
0: Probably not to the same extent. I mean, in some ways the the Democrats focus on multilateralism served them well in this instance because it pushed Biden's team to spend a lot of time laying the groundwork for a coordinated response. So it is helpful sometimes to have a multilateral instinct because that then conditions how you pursue those relationships and how you bring allies together. You know, if you had, I mean, would would, uh, George W. Bush have been able to do as good of a job in terms of bringing NATO and EU countries together? I'm not so sure. Trump certainly I don't think would have done an as good job that said, I I think you're right to point out that multilateralism can be seen as an end unto itself. It isn't, it's a means towards other things. We have to be clear about what we're actually trying to accomplish. Multilateral mechanisms are a tool that we use to get to that end point where sometimes I think you get the impression listening to some democratic policymakers and analysts is, just be multilateral, just always be, you know, nice and friendly with allies. Like sometimes you got to have some tough love with allies. I mean, Trump even occasionally would get this right in that he understood that Germany's, I don't know if maybe understood is too strong a word, but he intuited that Germany's dependence on Russian gas was an issue. He intuited that the fact that Germany couldn't reach the 2% threshold for military spending was an issue. So sometimes you got to now were his methods successful. No. Um, but sometimes you do have to push allies and you, you, it's probably better to do in a constructive way if they're a fellow democracy. And this is the other point I just say about one thing that Biden and the democratic party, I think are getting right. This isn't just great power competition. This isn't just a strategic question. It's also an ideological one. So when Biden talks about how the defining battle of our time will be that between democracies and autocracies, that is a good way to frame it. Because if Russia, if Russia was a democracy and if Putin was properly democratically elected, it's unlikely he would have invaded Ukraine there is something inherent to an authoritarian mindset that leads to certain kinds of actions because if you want to go to war you also have to suppress domestic opposition sometimes so all this kind of all this fits together if we look at putin's putin's rubric right now it's suppression at home and imperialism abroad China. Why, why are we so, why are we so concerned about China's rise? Part of it is because it's a totalitarian regime that commits genocide among, uh, on, on minorities, um, so on and so forth. So, and that's also a good way to get am- Americans on board. If you want to actually persuade them that there's not only a strategic rationale, but that this is part of the American idea, that there is a moral question that we as Americans should prioritize that has to be part of the message. If you want to, if you want to, um, kind of rally Americans behind a message.
1: So, uh, you raised this and uh, we actually did a piece on this in the dispatch a while back by, um, shake but I I'm kind of just curious what your answer to it is for a long time. You know, the organization of Islamic States took Positions that were you know that, that took great offense at things that America did, stuff with israel yada 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 you know um, there were voices in the sort of political Muslim community that would sometimes use a lot of hot rhetoric about you know what America was trying to do to muslims and 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 all of these kinds of things and uh, that's all you know in the past, but the fact why is why, you know, it, a lot of Islamic countries, you know, use the, state, the, the status and the plight of the Palestinians as, um, um, for domestic political reasons, right? And the, uh, the terrible things are happening to fellow Arabs or fellow Muslims. And I get that argument and, you know, we could sure we could have a long conversation about all that. Why is the fact that China is basically just trying to erase an entire Muslim population not arousing anything like the same kind of outrage among a lot of Islamic countries um, is it that you're just not hearing about it? I mean, what what is your theory about what? Because it seems to me like that that should really arouse anger or at least afflict the conscience, and yet you just you don't see any much sign that that any of the, a similar reaction is anywhere on offer. I think
0: part of that is particularly in the Middle East the vast majority of countries are repressive dictatorships and dictators don't care about Muslims. They don't care about Muslim lives. So for them, you know, I don't even, I don't think they really care about Palestinian lives either. Um, and this gets back to the question of regime type authoritarian countries don't tend to value human life. They don't tend to respect human dignity. They, I mean, they kill their own people. So It's not super surprising that they would be somewhat um that they would you know turn a blind eye to china's killing of um of its own uh, of its own Uyghur population so that's part of it i think if we're talking about the broader population it's hard to know what they really think because information access is controlled the state media wants to say good things about china because china puts pressure on these countries economically so there's a major economic and trade component here that many of these cr- countries are becoming increasingly dependent on Chinese support and Chinese trade. And China is very sensitive, if you say anything about the Uyghur Muslims and what they're doing to them. And China, China is very straight up about what the terms of their engagement are. Um, you want to do business with us? Don't criticize us. So that, I think, puts Um, even otherwise well-intentioned Muslim countries, because obviously there are Muslim majority countries that are not authoritarian, um, like, like Indonesia and so forth. Um, it's just hard to speak out against China. And that's, that's where the broader context of America's America's struggle with China becomes relevant, that we have to convince some of these countries that they should stick to, I don't love using this kind of terminology, but our side and that they shouldn't be inching towards China. But that requires us as Americans to be more engaged. In Africa, uh, uh, you know, in in, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, but also uh, North Africa, China is becoming much more involved. And the U.S. doesn't really pay attention, certainly not to sub-Saharan Africa, the way that it should. So if we're not engaged, then a lot of these countries are going to indulge the Chinese regime.
1: All right, you, I've kept you longer than I promised I would, so I'm going to let you go. Um, Shadi Mita, really appreciate you coming. We'll put the show, we'll put the article in the show notes, and thanks for doing this.
0: Great, uh, thanks, Jonah. Pleasure to be with you.
1: Okay, so Shadi has left the studio. Um, it was uh, really great talking to him. Um, I just didn't want to twist the knife too much on my my, my cruel accusation that he's turning neoconservative because um, um, I want to maintain his credibility on his side of the aisle, but... Um, uh obviously there's a lot that i agree with and i could feel as i suggested some listeners saying why aren't you pushing back on this that or the other thing um and uh i felt like if i got into a huge debate about you know whether america was a force for good or evil everywhere and anywhere in american history um as much as i like discur- you know discursive tangents and all the rest we wouldn't be able to stay on topic for very long. Um, but, uh, as I think I said, I do think that America has been net good for the world, um, since its founding. And, um, do we make mistakes? Sure. Are there things we could have done differently? Sure. Uh, but the, particularly since world war II, the global order that America was essential to enforcing and sustaining, um, has been good for the world. Um, you know, problems and exceptions that people might draw, notwithstanding, even if I were to concede all of those things, it was still net good for the world. And one of the things I like about Shadi's point is that he's, or his article is that he kind of recognizes that that's the case going forward as well. Because the simple fact is, is that just because America is a great power and sometimes acts like a great power, that does not mean that all great powers are equal and that the the, the sort of the world order that America wants to promote, um, is simply superior to the world order that Russia would want to promote or that China would want to promote. And if, um, if we're going to have a world order promoted by a superpower, it would be, it's in our interest and in the world's interest that it be us. Um, and I can talk about that more, um, down the road, but anyway, it was great to have him on. And, um, Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. It's a podcast.